Would you please turn to Matthew chapter 8? Matthew chapter 8 and uh, interacting with Al uh, this week uh, and last on uh, just this season you're in as a local church. I thought this text, uh, I hope, will serve just to contribute to what the work of the Holy Spirit is already doing uh, in your midst, uh, not, not merely with church planning and pastor's college, but, but what might God be saying to all of us at Palm Vista in this season as we're inspired, as we're stirred up, as we're just affected in thinking about the joy-filled sacrifices being made by a few families, what is he saying to us as the whole family? of Palm Vista. It's my prayer that this uh, text will speak to that question. Would you read with me Matthew 8 verses 18 to 22 and then let's pray together. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him and gave orders to go over to the other side, a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Just by way of a title, if that serves and a little context, This was the final message I gave as senior pastor at Grace Community Church in Pennsylvania prior to moving to Orlando. And I'm just going to keep the title from that message. And it's simply this, Dear Friends, Follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege with being with these new but already dear friends at Palm Vista. Lord, thank you for how quickly you have knit my heart to the pastoral team in full. Lord, to Jason and Jose, to Corey and Al. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of already having this opportunity to be here two times within six months, to have been able to go to Cuba and and just learn from Al and, and actually to be able to return with him later this summer. Lord, thank you for relationship. And thank you for how as we walk together in relationship, we We are spurred on by one another. And now specifically from this text, would you spur us on? Lord, what does it mean for us to follow you? Specifically, as a church family, but also individually. And so, I pray this morning, you'd stir us up to consider afresh what our followership means what it is you call us to. And in some way, would this make a contribution to what you're already doing here in Palm Vista in this season, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse 18 is a peculiar verse. And where this passage fits in the overarching context, I think just is meant to get our attention. Verse 18, Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Now why 
why is this here? And the reason I ask why is this here is because if you're familiar with the book of Matthew, he has just completed the Sermon on the Mount. He has been performing miracles. He has been performing signs and wonders. And there's a crowd and this crowd just seems to grow and grow and grow. And right in the midst of all this, you'd think right when he's got their attention, he gives orders to go over to the other side. In other words, he gives orders to get away from the crowd. Why? Why is that? Well, I think uh, James Boyce is helpful here when he says, since these verses, referring to 18 to 22, since these verses come in the middle of a section documenting the authority of Jesus over sickness, we might ask, why has Matthew included this here? The obvious answer is that Matthew wants to show that the same Jesus who has authority over sickness, nature, and demons also has authority over the lives of of his disciples. Jesus determines what following will involve, not us. Therefore, if we're going to follow Jesus, it must be on his terms rather than our own. And so Matthew 8, 18 to 22, I believe among other reasons, is preserved here right where it is in the book of Matthew to reveal the call and the claim that Jesus makes upon the lives of his followers. This this text, these few verses invite us, they, they really, they beg us, they exhort us to consider what does it mean to follow Jesus? What did it mean for this scribe? What did it mean for another of the disciples? What does it mean for you and me here today? And I want to I get to that consideration, if you will, excuse me, by considering two things specifically from the text. From verses 19 and 20, we're going to consider our expectations in following Jesus. And then in verses 21 and 22, we're going to consider what it cost us to follow Jesus. So consider the expectations. Consider the cost. Let's look at this first one. Consider in our following Jesus, let's consider our expectations in following him. Let me reread verses 19 and 20. A scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you Wherever you go. And Jesus gives this very interesting reply. It's like he doesn't answer the question, but he completely answers the question to this scribe. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I mean, what kind of reply is that to, I will follow you wherever you go? I mean, we might expect... Okay, <laughs> or will you really, or something, but what? Foxes have holes? Birds of the air have nests? I mean, who's talking about nature here? I'm talking about following you. Well, Jesus knows the heart. He knows how to answer every individual. So let's unpack what's going on here a little bit more. Remember verse 19 again? A scribe. This is a scribe that comes up. Well, who was a scribe at this point in Israel? A scribe was, was a respected authority or leader, if you will, in Israel. Israel, A scribe was knowledgeable and skilled in teaching the Old Testament. They held official positions within Israel. And, you know, I don't want to 
assume I know anything about the motives of this scribe. But at, at this point, you know, the, the collection of guys that Jesus has, you know, to do ministry with him, a couple fishermen, <laughs> Matthew's a tax collector. You know, actually a scribe might not be a bad addition, you know, to, to the posse, so to say. This might bring some respectability uh, to this group. You know, I mean, you'd think like, hey, a, I mean, this is like, this is like a round one draft pick right here. We've got a scribe on the team. Well, Jesus knows what's going on. A scribe, at this time in Israel, a scribe led a pretty good life. And so there, there, there's something compelling and sincere about this scribe statement that he's, he's, he's going to follow the teacher wherever he goes. And this scribe has apparently been paying attention. Now, to set, to set up what he says here in verse 19, I think we have to go back. You can just listen along. But this really, this starts to really gain momentum at the end of Matthew 4, where we read that Jesus is going throughout all Galilee. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So, Matthew 4, verse 24, his fame is spreading throughout all Syria. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases, and he healed them. Verse 25, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, from beyond the Jordan. Verse 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then we have the Sermon on the Mount. We get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount at uh, Matthew 7, verse 28, where we read, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Listen, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. This scribe's paying attention. He sees where the action is. This guy's got crowds. He's got healing. He's, he's preaching about the kingdom. I'll follow you wherever you go. Now again, please don't misunderstand. I'm not, I'm not assuming anything about his motives, but uh, as you've got the Miami Heat here coming up on game three, when Allen Iverson signed with the Philadelphia 76ers, this crowd followed him wherever he would go for one reason. Money. Fame. Notoriety. And it was making news locally in Philadelphia all the time. These, these, these hanger-ons who had no jobs other than to just follow. Now, I'm not assuming that scribe's motives, but, but let's just pay attention to the text. This scribe's been observing along the way that... Um, People want to follow this man. I want to follow him. And so Jesus replies with this very peculiar reply. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Listen, Jesus called himself the Son of Man intentionally to this scribe because he knew something. Jesus knew this scribe would know exactly what he meant when he said to him, Son of man. Remember, the scribes, they were the Old Testament experts. They were the teachers of the Old Testament. So Jesus knows that this scribe most assuredly knows Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, 
With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, who, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I will follow you wherever you go. Well, this is a fascinating reply. If the Son of Man has all dominion, authority, and power in a kingdom that doesn't end, according to Daniel 7, why is Jesus saying, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head? How can that be? Here's how. Here's what He wants this scribe to understand as it relates to followership. That before dominion, before glory, before kingdom, there was going to be a road marked with suffering, a road that would culminate on a cruel cross. There is a cost to following this Son of Man. See, Jesus' words to the scribe, I believe, were designed to bring this scribe to a crisis point, a decision point in his following. Why do you want to follow me? What is it you think you're going to gain in following me? Great crowds, healing. This one teaches not like our scribes, one who has authority, like he's where the action is. Is that why you're following me? Listen. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have nowhere yet to lay my head. And I think what Jesus is getting at is the expectations of the scribe. Now, there's so much about that we can't relate to. We're not scribes. We're not in their setting. But I think we understand what Jesus is doing. I think... We can have our own expectations evaluated, even as we look at the scribe here. What did he think? Were there expectations of worldly comfort and exaltation, perhaps an inside track to a glorious earthly kingdom? If those were his expectations, how wrong, how misguided. And so Jesus wants to deliver him in compassion to a crisis point. Listen. Before you leave all to follow me, are you in touch with what you're expecting? What are the implications for us? Why is this preserved for us? I think it begs us to ask the question, what, what are my expectations in following Jesus? I mean, think, think of it. Think of some of the things, just some of the things Jesus said about followership in his earthly gospel ministry think of matthew 5 in this sermon on the mount he says blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake think of what he said to the disciples in john 15 when he said if they persecuted me they will also persecute you how about john 16 in this world you will have tribulation Speaking about Paul, he said, I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. And then even Paul himself said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And and we're not even getting yet to the passages that talk about servanthood and sacrificial giving and sharing our lives and possessions and our one anothering. I mean, what are our expectations in following Jesus? The scribe had expectations. 
but they're not properly aligned. And so Jesus is seeking to serve them. Now, that description of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, oh indeed, that day will come. That day is coming. There, there is a day coming where this will all culminate in a glorious end. Although I'm a little concerned with Al because he doesn't think ice hockey will be a part of heaven. I, I beg to differ, my friend. I mean, if you can have a beach, why can't I have an ice hockey rink, you know? That future day's coming. The scribe was a bit early, a bit premature, thinking that day was already now. No, before glory, before exaltation, there is a path marked with suffering so that you and I could be gathered here today. What are our expectations? Have you noticed this? Let me put it this way. I've been a Christian now 22 years. I think I've actually found life to be harder as a Christian than I ever did prior to coming to Christ. Have you experienced that? Like, I never used to wrestle with sin. I just did it. You know? I mean, I would think about stuff, you know, potential consequences and all that, but, but only to the... I mean, it never had to do with pleasing anyone. It just had to do with self-preservation. I will or won't do this based upon the risk factor, so to say. Like, light, I mean, I think R.C. Sproul said that way once. Life doesn't even begin to get complicated until one becomes a Christian. Young folks here, if you profess Christ, do you not find that to be the case? There's this torment. There's this angst. It's called the Holy Spirit. He's a person. It's not torment and angst. It's the Spirit of God living within us. Enabling us to see where this world is trying, 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 trying. Desperately trying to squeeze us into its mold. But we're followers of another kingdom. I mean, come on. How many billions of dollars of boats are within five miles of here? I mean, there was a lot more options this morning than this, right? It's okay to admit it. It's okay to admit. You know, I wouldn't mind being out on some boat right now. Life doesn't begin to get complicated. Decisions don't begin to get complicated truly until one's a follower of Christ. The scribe needed to hear that foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, following Jesus is not the pathway to ease perpetual prosperity and affliction-free living. No, it's just the opposite for a temporal season. So have you considered, or do we need to consider it fresh? You know, because I find this too. We seem to ebb and flow, don't we? If you've been in Christ for a while, we have seasons where we seem really clear on this and we embrace it and we understand. And then there are other seasons. Seasons where the followership doesn't feel like so much joy. It feels far more demanding. And so it's good for us to consider, Lord, where am I with that presently? You know, even as you think of some of your local examples, right? I mean, honestly, uh, 
come on. Miss how my flesh goes, you know. So if I'm thinking of Jason and Judith Ann, I'm like, hey, I mean, yeah, I went to the pastor's cause. That's all great, but I, you can have a baby in September. I hope this doesn't start to sound discouraging. This is going somewhere. Um, there, there's got to be an easier time. Yeah, why now? Or I'll say in Christine, I mean, you know, at church planning, yeah, we had a six-month-old when we did it. Man, it was hard. Why don't you wait a little while? Yeah, there, there's always going to be that stuff, isn't there? There's always going to be something. Always. There'll never be a time where that's not the case, where we're not in this battle of, what does it mean right now? What are my expectations right now? Well, this comes in a little more clearly as we look at the second Example here, the disciple, another of the disciples. If the way Jesus responded to the scribe was peculiar, th- this response is borderline outright offensive. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, in Luke's account of this, there's one more additional person. The person says, let let me just go and say farewell to my friends. And Jesus' reply to him is, he who sets his hand to the plow, once he turns back, he's not fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, what kind of teacher is this? The guy wants to bury his father. Listen, consider what it might cost you to follow Jesus. That's, that's what the second one presents us with. Consider what it might cost us to follow Jesus. What is Jesus saying? Because we know when we read, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. We know. This is Christ. This is our Savior. He must mean something more than what appears on the surface. He's not cold, uncaring, and callous. In fact, everything we know from His gospel ministry is His compassion and mercy and delight to care for people. So what does he mean? Follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. Well, it may, as some say, it may mean in this case that this disciple's father has just died and that he needed to go and attend to his burial. Some commentators suggest that his father was sick, was in the process of dying, and this disciple just wanted to stay near and attend to him until the process of dying was completed. Others suggest, though, and this would not have been uncommon then, that it was a reference not only to care for the man's father, but also to care for the father's estate, and as a son, ensure that he was present when it came time for the estate to be divvied out. This was not a time to be away. Inheritance distribution could be in view. Well, this is... What a lot of commentators actually think is happening here based on other passages of scripture that speak to greed and wealth that that the likelihood is that this guy's dad wasn't dead, possibly wasn't even sick. Now we don't know that with absolute certainty, but the overall context and the way Jesus replies to him seems to suggest that. This, This guy's father isn't Dead and, and let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He may not be thinking about money. He may not be thinking, I've got to stay right here until I get what's coming to me, until I get my inheritance. It just may be that he's thinking, well, 
right now, right now, there are things I need to do first. That's the key word here. Let me first go bury my father. Let me first do that. Now, was, was that implying he wanted to secure his earthly temporal inheritance? Don't know with certainty. Although that was common in their day. And uh, growing up, by the way, in Lancaster County, that was my experience. Not, not that they were motivated the wrong way, but growing up among the Amish and Mennonite, is very common. The oldest son would stay near to the father until the father passed away, and then the son would inherit what his father left. And so the son dare not go away. Because that, well, that would have meant his father wasn't giving him his inheritance. Because part of getting that was being there. Was that this guy's motivation? We don't know with certainty. We just know this. There was something first. Have you noticed that in our own walk with Christ? There's always something first, isn't there? There's always something that we could say, let me first, let me first, let me first. And, and can I say to you, I, I can relate. Whatever this disciple's motives were, and by the way, he's a disciple. He's already a follower, okay? He is following to some degree, but it, it, it's always saying, listen, my, my sold-outness, my, my wholeheartedness, my, my all-inness, let me first do this. And then when this happens, then I'm all in. We all can relate to that, can't we? I can relate. Man, I feel like, you know, last eight months of my life, I've known this like I've never known this passage. You know, I told you, when I first gave this message, it was a Grace Community Church, and I'm, I'm looking out on this congregation that we planted. It's 50 people. Now there's 400-something there, and I'm thinking, God, I... I do, I do, I want to follow you. If you want us to go to Central Florida, okay, but, but let, let me first, we've been praying about building a building, let, 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 me, let me first do that. Um, our house, it's not a good market. And we went so far as to put it up for sale, but it's not selling. Let, let, let me first, I mean, you, you want me to be a good steward, right? I mean, you, you, you know, you start to charge God subtly with things. Let me, let me first get the household. When, when in reality, what I was saying and all that is, I don't like the idea of selling it in a down market and losing money because, because I trust more in my ability to provide for my family, God, than I do you to provide for my family. Now, of course, I don't utter those things out loud. I just live with those thoughts. Are you like me? Of course you are. I mean, we know better than to say those things. Let me first sell my house at the right price. And then just that general sense of, yeah... There's just more I wanted to accomplish here. Let me first. But you know what that was ultimately revealing? Just pointing out who I ultimately trusted to build that church. God or myself. Or maybe you can just relate this one. Let, let me get all of my uncertainties and unanswered questions resolved first. Show me the 15 new relationships my kids will have. 
Show me this. Show me that. Show me everything first. Show me, show me, show me. Let me, let me, let me. And then I will. We're really not different than this disciple, are we? It might not be, let me bury my father. But what's your let me right now? What is your let me first? How many of them are there? That's why, you know, you've got this wonderful, unique season here at Palm Vista. I mean, would any of us question Jason and Judith Ann if they said, let, let, let us first give birth to this child in, in this community that we know with our support? I mean, would anybody fault them for that? Of course not. And, and, and that wouldn't necessarily be wrong. That's not even the point. Just their willingness joyfully to say, now, now's the time. We believe this is what God's saying. This is what the multitude of counsel around us is saying. Or, Jose and Christine, I mean, you know, why don't, why don't you wait till you get 120 committed people to that church plan? You know, then go. And Al and Corey might say, so long as those 120 are in some other church. (laughs) Not this one. Right? Let's first... What's your let first? Luke 14. 25 to 35. Just just listen to it. it. It's really saying the same thing. But Jesus speaking about the cost of discipleship. So now great crowds accompany me, turn and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And that's what he's doing with the scribe and with the disciple in Matthew. He's helping them consider the cost. You're talking about building a tower, scribe. You haven't even factored what it's going to cost. You're talking about burying your father. You haven't even seen how you want everything assured in your life before you're willing to follow me. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. So, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then he summarizes it this way, and I don't think it's helpful that our Bibles have kind of created what appears to be a division between verse 33 and 34. I think they go together. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What's he saying? He's saying, half in isn't in. Mostly in isn't in. All in, that's in. Not let me first, let me first, let me first. We all have this call. But we're living, we're living in a world, we live in a culture, we live in a country 
that battles that every day. My wife enjoys HGTV from time to time. There's an episode on. And I'd just been reading a book on manhood. And, and this guy, he, he deemed a phrase called ban, B-A-N. And what he meant was, it's a, it's, it's a grown-up male, but who is, so should therefore no longer be a boy, but he's not embracing manhood either. So he's a ban. He's a, he's a boy man. And I'm like, what is this guy talking about? Then I'm watching this HGTV episode with Melissa, and I don't even remember what the name of that individual show was, but he's walking people through his house, and, and, and he's got this room, and the room is dedicated entirely to video games. And he says it, this is where I play my video games. He was 38 years old. And I saw that episode actually in a hotel room, the very same night we had walked out of Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, this is last November, where we heard testimony from a mother and a father. Their sons married to two young ladies who are all preparing to relocate to North Africa to plant a church in a country in turmoil in a country where they're not welcome. So I've got that image in my heart, and I've got, this is where I play my video games. Now, listen, I'm not saying we're all on the, this is where I play my video games. But those stories got to stir us, and they invite us to consider, what does it mean? What does it mean for me and my life individually to follow Christ. Now, now listen, what could be confusing or misunderstood is that it, it means picking up and moving. No, it, it probably doesn't mean that for most of us. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It, it, it doesn't necessarily mean something drastic. In fact, sometimes I think, I think we can be more prone to do something drastic because the little things that we probably ought to do just seem harder. I mean, right? We do something drastic. That's not necessarily what this is about. It's just about inquiring. It's about going to God in prayer. What, what does it mean? You know, maybe for those of you who are not called to go on that church plan and who aren't going to the pastor's college, what does it just mean right here at Palm Vista? What would it mean for me and my household to be all in at Palm Vista? What would that mean by way of my service? What would that mean by way of my giving? Young persons, peoples, what would that mean for you right now? Who will be the one who will go to God and pray for the courage and the boldness to speak to my peers to say, listen, we're, we're drinking this malaise, this cultural malaise in. I'm guilty. But I think God has more for us. Who, who's going to rise up? Now that might cost you, won't it? You might not be very popular in that moment. You might disrupt status quo. I mean, that might have implications on what's in your playlist, for goodness sake. Consider. What's it mean? Maybe, maybe it's that simple, young person. 
Maybe the cost of following Jesus is to not be so concerned about being as culturally relevant as you can be. What's it mean? I don't know specifically what it means for each of us, but it does mean something. What might he call you to? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he knew what it cost. He knew that grace was costly. But I think he, he so wonderfully describes the motivation behind it all. When he said, he said, uh, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. It's grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly. Remember, he's writing this from prison. Gladly go. Sell all that he has. Costly grace, it's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follow him. You notice there's no let me first in this kind of grace. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. As we close, we consider the expectations we might have. We consider the cost. But ultimately, you know what this text begs us to do? Positions us to do? It's to consider who calls us to follow. And you know who. Who is the one calling us? None other than our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. The one who calls us to this followership, that is costly, is the one who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He calls us to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation made ready to be revealed at the last time. The one who calls us is the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end, and the end, friends. The end is our arrival in the new Jerusalem. And you know what? That's what got Melissa and I to pack our moving truck and get to central Florida. Yeah, the, the costs, the sacrifices, they're great. Oh, but they're so temporary. They're so light and momentary. There is a new Jerusalem. And we will walk again with the saints of Grace Community Church in Pennsylvania. And we will walk for them forever. And the time we parted will seem like nothing more than a weekend away. In light of all eternity. Whatever it is God would call you to set aside, oh, it's not worth comparing to the surpassing weight of glory, friends. It might be easier to not plant that church down the road. Oh, but it's more glorious to do so. It might be easier to just stay here, Jason and Judith Ann, but it's oh, so more glorious to go. 
And in that city there's no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb and we will see His face. And night will be no more. They'll need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they'll reign forever and ever. Friends, Palm Vista, this is the one who calls us to follow. So whether it's as simple as evaluating your playlist, young friend, or whether it's truly praying about a whole other level of service and sacrifice to this local church and beyond, older friend, and everyone in between, consider. Consider what it means today to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Palm Vista. And the very clear, the apparent, obvious followership that already exists. But Lord, I pray first for my own soul. Lord, I I pray this way. That simply because Melissa and I and our kids have moved, that, that... that we not somehow think, well, okay, we've, we've done our followership. We've, we've done what you've called us to do. That we think of that in a way that would exclude us from future followership opportunities. That may not mean moving, but just may mean living all the more radically in light of a future day. And that future day informing decisions for today. And I would pray that here for Palm Vista. This church that, that is exemplifying followership by sending out two couples through generous giving last week. Oh, but Lord, may, may we not now think, okay, we've done that. And now we sit back. But instead, Holy Spirit, come and speak to each individual heart. Lord, I don't, I don't even know clearly why this morning, but in a particular way, my heart is burdened for the, the, the young adults and teenagers of Palm Vista. Oh God, help them to see where this world is seeking to squeeze them into its mold. Help them to see where, where they, they have acted more in sync with that than of your world. And grant them mercy to see it and mercy to repent and courage. Courage for someone or ones to rise up and say, let's chart a different course here. Let's live today in light of that day. Let's be spent in our young adult years in such a way that we don't look back with regret feeling like we wasted them. Oh God, I don't know that anyone here is wasting them. I I just pray for a fresh fire in the belly of these young adults to be stirred up, to want to do something. And that do something doesn't necessarily mean they've got to go somewhere might actually mean staying put. But putting their hands to the plow, perhaps in a way they never have. And with joy saying, oh God, I don't want to look back. I want to press on for the upward call and the upward prize. So Lord, do what only you can do. Help each of us to know, what does it mean to follow you? Amen.